0: Love is a space dedicated to books I've recently read and loved, books that made me wish to strike up a conversation with the author and ask them questions all about the book and their experience of writing it. My name is Janice Parriott and I'm a writer and storyteller and that was Vincent, also known as Kitty, who will more than occasionally make his opinions known about the books he likes to fall asleep on. We are your hosts. Thank you so much for joining us. Our guest today has written three books. We did the math and that's about 1,700 pages, an astonishing approximately 850,000 words and all of this in the space of five short years. And it's not just the math that's impressive. The books themselves are sensitive, accomplished testaments to memory, belonging, partition and love and friendship across political borders. Archal Malhotra is a Delhi-based writer and oral historian, the author of Remnants of Separation in the Language of Remembering and the Book of Everlasting Things, her first novel that we'll be discussing today. The Book of Everlasting Things tells a story both deeply intimate and widely encompassing of time, place, and history. It follows the lives of Samir, a Hindu perfumer, and Firdos, a Muslim calligrapher, from when they meet as children in Lahore, in undivided India, fall in love, and then their journeys apart, beyond partition, to the lavender fields of grass in, in France, to Paris, and back always like a morning prayer to the city of Lahore. Like most books I love, this one is ambitious, moving beyond the confines of national or regional boundaries out into the world, yet all the while paying loving attention to detail, to place and historical moment, to the art and rigor of perfumery and calligraphy, to the hope held out by love. Archil, I'm so happy to have you here.
1: Thank you so much for that generous introduction. I was just beaming throughout. I'm not used to so much praise and I'm also not used to someone counting the number of pages I've written. It's a bit embarrassing, isn't it?
0: I think it's astonishing. I just, I love that you have done all of this in just, you know, this brief, almost fleeting sort of moment. I just, um, I'm so impressed by the dedication that you've, you know, devoted towards, towards your writing, towards your craft.
1: Well, it's, it's five years of publication, but you know that a book is much more than just when it comes out. So I would say it's really 10 years of, of writing, which it's, it's not a lot if you think about it then, you know, 10 years. It's the
0: beginning. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. So, Archer, um, what for you are the everlasting things in your book? That's a great question.
1: I don't think I've been asked that question. But the one thing that kept me going, because it's, it's very difficult to keep your interest in a project for a number of years. And in this case, the novel took me five years, starting to write it, finishing to edit it, five years. The thing, well, the, the everlasting thread would be one of family, I think. And it is how history impacts the generations of a family, how the consequences of historical events manifest in the various generations. And then, of course, some um, family secrets. I think a lot about secrets.
0: Um, I know that there's a small family story that's that triggered the idea for the Book of Everlasting Things. Would you like to share it with our listeners?
1: Yes. So the beginning of Everlasting Things uh, rests in a small memory that my mother relayed to me about her father. And her father was a chemist. He worked for Dabur the pharmaceutical company, and he would make uh, soaps and shampoos and you know all kinds of uh, bath and beauty products, I guess. And for that, he would receive vials of rose essence and and tube rose and jasmine essence and he would use them in his products and whatever he didn't use he would bring home and in the summertime he would put the remaining essences in the water of the cooler so that when the cooler went on one day the house would smell of jasmine another day it would be kind of uh, you know rose floating around And that idea of a single person going out of their way to create a sort of garden-like perfumed environment was so beautiful and amorous for me. And I used this little memory to actually build one of my protagonists, Vivek. Um, And then the
0: story grew from there i love that little story and i think you've also said that it's not as though it was a big story for you or for your mom but it was this memory that formed the kernel of um you know the book of everlasting things i think you know sometimes as writers there
1: are obviously our days made up of many ordinary things but as writers because we fixate on observing and listening and in a way, looking out for extraordinary things within the ordinary, you don't know what really catches our attention, but when it does, it becomes an almost obsession. I've seen this in my fiction work where something very, very small, like a movement or a gesture or um, even the use of a word that has not been used for a long time uh, holds my attention for a while. And I think it was the same with this that, The memory that she relayed was just in passing. She didn't think it would mean anything to me, but uh, I think it stayed in my head. And it was such a, I suppose, such a delicate way to think about someone like my grandfather, who I knew in my childhood as quite quite a stern man, you know. So to think of him in my mother's childhood doing this was just really, really beautiful.
0: That is rather lovely. And I love that, it brings together family, which you said is one of your, you know, everlasting things um, in the book. And it brings together smell, fragrance, perfume, which as we know is also such a large part of the book. And you know, biologically, of course, smell is intricately linked to memory. Um and in this book, all about perfume and smell, memory also plays such an important role. So was this something that you were consciously thinking about while writing the book, this connection between um, fragrance and memory? Well, it it serves as a question throughout the book. What is the connection
1: between smell and memory? And is it something that we can verbalize? Is it something that we can into language and if we can't put it into verbal language then can we put it into other forms of language is smell or by that extension the creation of a fragrance and evocation of memory so um uh, the protagonist the main protagonist of the novel Samir is of course a perfumer and this is something that he he battles with constantly through his life that he he is Wanting to recreate the memories that have been fractured because of a major historical and political event later in his life through fragrance. He wants to recreate the scenes of his childhood. He wants to, you know, um, compose the feeling of being with his beloved to exactitude. I remember at some point he thinks to himself. When he's remembering the woman he left behind because of partition, he thinks to himself that I'm, I'm remembering her laugh. I'm thinking of her eyes. I'm remembering her hair flying in the wind. Why was I not taught to compose these things into fragrance?
0: Yeah. Yeah. How lovely. So in some ways, placing entire worlds into a perfume. That's what Samir tries to do.
1: But that's what perfumers do anyway, you know. So I've learned over the years, spending time with perfumers, they, they imbue worlds. That's exactly what they do. They imbue worlds into vials of liquid and uh, we use it. And then we create other memories with those worlds, you know. Um, and so I think a perfume, much like other things that I've written about, objects, for instance, Perfumes can become portals. Smells can become passageways um, to the past, to people who are not there, to things that we remember, to moments in time that are important to us. You know, how often is it that we open the trunk and we think of a mother or a grandmother because of the smell? Just the other day, I got a ferrin from my closet and I put it on. It was my grandmother's. And I said, oh, God, I, I can feel her you know her smell that distinctly old person smell is is in this in this cloth in this fabric and uh, there is something very uh, i don't know the science behind that overlapping of, of memory and fragrance i do i'm not a scientist but i know that it's something almost indescribable and quite precious
0: it is memory and perfume then become portable as well they move um, across borders yeah. across the globe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're malleable. They are. They take many shapes. Absolutely. And also alongside um, perfume and perfumery in the book, which of course you know our our protagonists, both Vivek and Samir, are in some ways obsessed by, um, and which you bring you know to such sort of sensuous. Life on the page. Alongside that, there's calligraphy. Um, And I wondered why you chose these two in particular. I can understand perhaps with perfumery um, that, you know, um, this was a story that grew from the memory of a smell that your mum shared with you. But why calligraphy? And part two to that question was Did placing these two arts together on the page conjure something rather surprising or unexpected for you?
1: Maybe I'll answer the first, um, I'll answer the second part first. Um, I suppose the one thing that happened going back to arts that are Uh, non-literary. I mean, it's funny I say that about calligraphy because it is like the epitome of literary. But for me, it's also very visual. And more so because Fedos did Nakashi, which is embellishment illumination. So if you have illuminated manuscripts, she's the one that created all the motives and illuminations on the borders of manuscripts. And her father, Altaf, was the one who really did the text. So for me, Fidos is always associated with the illustration of books. I think it together these arts in some way connected me back to my life as an artist. And obviously that connects to the first part of your question as well, why these arts in particular? And there are many reasons for it. The first and foremost being these are arts that are unfortunately lacking attention, they are near, near death. Uh, In Delhi, it is very, where I live, it is very hard to find original Urdu calligraphers. I remember when I wanted to, when I had the idea that Firdaus was going to be a calligrapher, I had it in my mind that I needed to learn how to write with um, a bamboo column a reed pen, so that Fridoz could write with a column in the manuscript. I wanted to know how much pressure to put on the pen, how many times to dip it in the ink, what sound did the wood make when it was strained on the page. So I had to find a teacher that would be willing to um, humor me and my silly questions and my very small little videos that I would take of him drawing and teaching me how to draw and write. And it was very hard because I remember when I did find him, he, he used to work at the uh, Iranian, um, not embassy, but uh, the Iranian center, I think the, exactly, the Iranian cultural center. And uh, he would say that I will be back home at 9. You can come at 9.30. We will do some uh, calligraphy together and then that's it. So going to Chitli Kabir, at like nine at night, to learn how to do calligraphy. You know, like I, I feel like I, I, that's just one of the things in the book that I felt I had to do because I wanted to be able to do justice to the art. And, of course, with any form of art comes all the conversation around that art. And whether it is perfumery or calligraphy, there is so much of a sensorial um, investment that uh, it made me feel like I was back in a studio which when you're sitting in front of a computer looking at words all day is very difficult to do sometimes so I really missed uh, being in the printmaking studio I missed working with color and light and smell of course and all forms of liquid and paper and writing about perfumery and calligraphy to such an intimate degree uh, just made me feel like I was back in the studio. And when you're in that environment, your senses are alive. You are more, you know, you you observe a greater deal. You pay more attention to the details. And I felt that these were crafts that needed to be paid an homage to. Mm -hmm. There are many nonfiction books about these crafts. There are many nonfiction essays about you know, the last letter writers in Delhi or the perfumers of Kanoj or perfumers of Hyderabad. But I think sometimes when you put things in a novel and you bind them or weave them into story, people do remember them more. than they pay more attention to them when they find them in their everyday lives somewhere.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely right. I think the power of fiction is of transformation, of of. And I don't mean that in the in this tremendous sort of, you know, world-changing ways. I mean uh, a shift in just a small way of seeing, of yes. noticing, you know, the feel of paper, um, the smell of ink. Um, and, you know, your book is um, rich with all of that. And I think you said at some point that, you know, this is not a book to to quickly read, to sort of swiftly, you know, move through. And this is precisely why, because to pay attention is to slow down and to really, um, in some ways, bestow love upon the world, you know. Yeah. Um, um,
1: there's a little scene um, in the novel where Sameer
0: is, uh, he's
1: taking calligraphy lessons. That's how him and Firdaus really get to know each other. And um, he's obviously has not been learning calligraphy since a young age. So when he starts these lessons, he's 10 and he starts to mimic other children, like, you know, trying to hold the read the way they would or trying to hold the paper. But his curiosity, his like innate perfumer gets the better of him and he starts to smell the paper and, you know, look at the like texture of the ink and see how it compares to the liquid of perfume. And from a distance, Fethos is observing this and she's observing him partaking in her world. And on one level, on the level of the senses and the arts, of course, it's a very similar world because perfumery and papermaking and ink and calligraphy do interact in a very sacred way. But on another level, she's kind of as a child looking at him and thinking, God, how different he is and the things that he is interested in, you know, and I found that kind of juxtaposition also very delightful.
0: Yes, yes. So there are these similarities, but also these differences that draw them together. And in some ways, that's even more interesting and delightful, as you said, um, you know, given that your background is in the fine arts in the visual arts as a printmaker, um, you know, you have a, a, a BA and an, an MA in, in fine arts. Do you, do you feel in some ways that the Book of Everlasting Things is an extension of your visual artist self in the most sort of authentic way, in the most, in you know, in the most powerful way? Well, um, I think maybe,
1: I don't know if it's the most powerful that is for readers to decide. But I feel like because I have not been in a studio for a number of years, anything that I write, I try to bring that visual element to it. Um, Firstly, of course, I feel a massive imposter syndrome um, and being a part of this world, never having trained to be a part of this world. But I think the other end of that spectrum is that you, you give yourself a bit of freedom to be creative in your methodology because it doesn't come from a place of academia. And um, I have always tried to bring the way in which artists look at the world into my writing, if that makes sense. So while the novel, of course, as a form in itself, is a far more expansively visual terrain than, say, a piece of fiction, um, and in that sense, it may be most powerful in its image making and hence closest to the world of fine arts. I have thought that all of the writing that I do comes from imagery. I see images, I dream images. When I was an artist, I used to speak images also um, yeah i I do think that like to think in color, to think in light, to think in shape in in forms of architecture, how I begin thinking of my narratives,
0: yeah. And while you think in sh- in images, and you speak images, and you dream in images, there is also a certain tactility um, that I notice um, that in your work. Uh, so, for example, I read that um, you know you write your manuscripts out with pen and ink and paper. You write by hand, um, and I was just thinking how as a as a printmaker, you know, you made paper and, and, and bound books and sewed books. So, could you share with us how important this tactility, this tactileness is to your writing process?
1: Such a great question, Janice. Uh, honestly, so intuitive. And uh, as you were speaking, I was thinking of when we used to make paper, and there is such a sanctity to that process. Making paper, drawing it, printing on it, uh cleaning the press. And even writing a book by hand, what does it mean to write by hand versus just typing it all out on a computer? No, one is not better than the other. I think it just it's just what someone is comfortable with. For me, I think I feel if I write something by hand, it comes it's, even as I'm thinking it, it sounds really silly, but it comes directly from my brain. You know, it is it is a core idea or like an idea that is very precious that can be further expanded upon as I'm typing it. But the heart of the idea must be handwritten. And I don't know why I have this habit, um, but even for everlasting things, large, large parts of the manuscript were written by hand, entire scenes, entire chapters were written by hand. And uh, I do feel I need this engagement because as you as you rightly said, the tactile is very, very important to me. Um, maybe it is again, uh, sort of reenacting those, those roles of being in a studio, of creating something by hand, of being very much present in every element of that creation. But it may feel like I'm more invested in a manuscript if I'm working on it by hand and I have other um, like it's not like I don't know that the computer does the same thing you know if I need to if I <laughs> if I need to make a timeline I know that I can make it in Excel but I will still make it by hand and then also make it in Excel because I don't trust Excel completely it's very complicated if I need to a, if I need to make a comparison of two characters across various time zones or various timelines I will also make that by hand and I also feel like this practice is very peaceful to me like I love using the rule I love using my bone folder I love the notebook I have I'm very very specific about the notebook that I use, the pens that I use. And I know this is making me sound like an idiot or just like completely so OCD. But I truly feel (laughs) like, uh, you're laughing, okay? (laughs) Because
0: it's adorable.
1: Please continue. I do feel like my environment really adds to my, my level of productivity. So, you know, the one thing that people tell me a lot is that you're... Your desk is always so clean and I see photos of your desk. How, how do you maintain that cleanliness and neatness? And I want to bust this myth right now that artists are really disorganized people. Uh, some of us, maybe, but certainly not all of us. And you cannot paint all of us with a single brush. I learned very early when I was working on nonfiction work that um, if I am to keep track of 10, 20, 30, 40, sometimes 100 interviews and need to know what where and be organized in the voices of people, then I need to create a very uh, systematic way to do it. Because otherwise, you will drown in the voices and you will get lost in the information. And it will be very hard to sort of um, swim your way to the top. So I learned very early that I need to be very organized in any form of research that I am collating, uh, which meant that whether it was interviews or it was research for a chapter, it would all be very, very systematic. And I think with writing, those tools really came uh, to my aid when I was writing historical fiction, because as you know very well from Everything the Light Touches, there are so many trends small, almost invisible threads that you know in your head that you have to tie, but won't be able to tie the thread of the first chapter to the last chapter until you get there. So I think for me to keep track of all of this, I really, like the fact that I was so organized really benefited me. And uh, even when I write by hand, I have all of these little exercises that I do
0: um sometimes you dream a scene has that happened to you yeah. it does it comes to me as a series of images almost
1: yeah, exactly exactly and then you write it down but you don't know maybe where in the book it's going to be so i remember writing things down and uh, several several little scenes through various notebooks uh, organized of course um but then when i use it in the manuscript i cross it out with a red pen so no i can't use that scene or that phrase or that you know sequence of events or actions or movements anywhere else it's i i just very distinctly cross it out and so if you go through my notebooks for anything you'll just see a whole bunch of writing and then crossed out red pens you know uh, but it's
0: it's a system that works for me <laughs> Yes, of course, of course. It's this exceedingly systematic yet artisanal relationship that you have um, with your work. And I know that's a word that's tossed around very easily these days. Um, but it is artisanal. You know, it is a deep love for the material in all sorts of ways.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think that's um, that makes me feel better to hear as well, actually. <laughs>
0: and while we're talking about research or while we've just about touched on research i know that you've you know we've had this conversation before you've spent time in libraries you've Uh, been in reading rooms, you know, across the world, you've done a tremendous amount of textual research for the novel. Um, But could you tell us how important lived experience is to you as a historical fiction writer, lived experience as research, you know, the streets of Lahore, holding um, a calligraphy pen, um, being in Grasse or Paris. Um, What did this do for the book of Everlasting Things?
1: Several years ago, in 2014, a friend of mine, who's also a lovely writer, Kanza Javed, took me to this place called Wazir Khan Mosque in Lahore. Those that know Lahore know Wazir Khan as like this emblem of beauty. It's so stunning. And this was even before I started thinking about writing a novel or knowing that I had any skill to write fiction at all. And we walked around this place and... It has these beautiful golden, yellow, blue, green tiles. Um, and then that image of being in that place sat in my mind for years. And it became the first place I thought of when I started writing the novel. Fridaus' family run uh, a Khatati and Nakashi studio, calligraphy studio that mosque, a little bit outside that mosque. In fact, there is a calligraphy bazaar or wards in um, the early 1900s and they have a little uh, alcove shop and they run the studio and it was just a very mundane walk through this space in 2014 for a few minutes that made an image that sat in my mind and I was able to draw from that very short visit for years after, for years after. And I think I can't stress enough how important field research is for historical fiction. I also know that it is an incredible privilege to be able to go to places you want to write about. Um, It is a luxury and uh, I'm very grateful to people who have either shown me places or or given me grants to travel and write. You you also know very well how that is. Um, But I do think that there is something quite special and unique that comes from physically being in a place and being able to translate its environment in your own words and in your own feelings and sensations rather than relying on the words of other people, which sometimes we have no choice but to do. But um, I think being in Lahore, being in Paris, it's weird, the familiarity of Lahore and the familiarity of Paris for me came through in my work just in the way that I had wanted. Lahore is the space, the place, the home, the, the beginning of two of my grandparents. And uh, I see it as a sense of secondhand memory and secondhand home. So, I think of Lahore very, very differently than I thought of Paris. I spent so many weeks and months in Paris doing research, but it was always a foreign place. It was always a place where I was the other. Whereas, interestingly, Lahore being the other for Indians never made me feel like the other. But being in France, feeling like, knowing also well that I wasn't from there and Uh, my character also felt that way. Samir, when he settles eventually in France, there is always, no matter how many decades have passed, there is a sense of being from somewhere else. And I really wanted that unfamiliarity within the familiar space of having the same roads you walk on and the same coffee you buy and knowing the number of steps you walk up to your apartment. You still feel like, I have come from somewhere else and I will carry that experience with me always.
0: Yeah. Do you think that this is why Samir holds on to Lahore, to Firdos, as closely as he does? Because we follow his entire life. You know, we follow him in some ways to the end. And yet... um, this core memory, you know, of his love, of his home, um, they remain with him so strongly that in some ways he's never really able to move on. Um, and is that something that you consciously crafted for this character?
1: I think it's something that I saw in a lot of people I was interviewing for my nonfiction work. And I've thought about this a lot. I've thought about, I've spent a great deal thinking about the fact that if I think back to my childhood, there are certain key moments I remember. And that's predominantly because of the photographs I have from those moments. And we we are children that have grown up with technology. So it's very easy for us to take images of certain things now on our phones And we can build a chronology of our life like that. But I am amazed, beyond amazed at times, when I speak to people who are in their 80s, who are in their 90s, who have crossed multiple borders and migrated to different places, lived lived their lives in places for longer than they have lived in their homeland, as is the case with Samir. And they can still recall with utmost clarity how long it took them to walk out of their house and to the, you know, neem tree or where they used to ride or where they used to play kites or how many friends they had. Or they can draw from memory the maps of their villages. And I find this, like, this kind of imagery, this kind of image making as a mnemonic device so fascinating because I can't do that. I don't do that because I never had to do that. I've never had to go down the places of my childhood because I've never lost them. And um, I think, you know, this is also a conversation that happens in the book between Firdaus and her husband. Firdaus, who has become Pakistani and always has remained in Lahore, and her husband, Fahad, who um, comes from Delhi because of partition and settles in Lahore, and she says that, I understand how you feel. I understand leaving your friends behind, leaving your life. And he said, no, you don't actually. Because you've never had to. You've never had to. He will never understand. And he doesn't say it as, as something that is rude or to belittle her. He says it very matter-of-factly that there is no world in which you have had to recreate in full language the memory of what you left behind, because you are in it, you are living it, you are still on your land, you have not lost it. And I think I, I I recognize this shade, this shade of feeling in so many people that I interviewed for my nonfiction work that it felt like a very natural trait to give to Samir, that throughout his life, and especially at the end of his life, he returns to the beginning of his life. Um, it is a very normal thing that happens with elderly people. My, my grandfather, on his deathbed, asked my grandmother, in full seriousness, Shall we go to Delhi? Shall we get on the train? And she was heartbroken and she said to him, uh, We are already in Delhi. And he had returned to that moment of migration. But it's a very to be found in many people who lived through partition and other moments and I felt like it's it's incredible sometimes that they hold on to the memory of the 10 years they may have spent in Karachi or Lucknow versus the 80 years then they would have spent in you know the opposite country so it felt like I think Samir says this sometime sometime in the novel he does say this that I have spent more years thinking about the the years that the past actually happened
0: yeah oh I'm just gonna sit in that sort of in that moment just for a second because it's really just so beautiful and so powerful Ajal and quite sad as well it's quite
1: sad that there are also unattainable yeah they are unattainable places now to go that's why memory becomes such a potent such an important uh, thing because there are places in which only...
0: You can access only through memory.
1: Exactly. There are places only memory can take you. And so many people that I spoke to said things like, we only returned in dreams. So I, I do feel like going back to your question of field work also, this is why actually spending the time to converse with people, being in places, doing things that you will write about is so essential almost. Because we are limited by our own experiences. But I think the minute we open our minds and our hearts to the experiences of people who were actually there at the time or did the things that we are writing about, there is obviously an immense amount of learning but also respect and humility that comes for you are writing about, the manner in which you are writing about it, the extent and uh, intricacy you can, um, you can write about and the depth, you know, and uh, the, I suppose, just the intensity with which you feel second-handedly even about that thing or that place or that activity.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that memory becomes an almost- you know, um, it, it is carried as an almost throughout someone's life. Um, in fact, I noticed at the beginning of the book, you know, in the pages at the front that display the family trees of each of our, our protagonists, Samir and Prados, that there's a dotted line that connects these two characters. Um, and I thought that was such a... Potent and delicate touch, um, because of course we know, you know, they lose each other, and they're wrenched apart. They're wrenched apart by partition. Um, and I was thinking how, for many authors, this is the story. You know, the 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 partition story of these two lovers um, uh, having to, you know, to uh, give each other up in the face of this momentous um, historical, you know, moment. So why was it important for you to follow their lives beyond that, you know, quite literally to their end?
1: Firstly, Janice, I want to say you are the first person ever to bring up the tree ever. Um, The dotted lines were very conscious, very, very conscious. Um, there is another couple in the family tree that has a dotted line. Mm-hmm. Um, I will let the reader figure that out if they want to pay
0: into yes, this. <laughs> um,
1: but that's a really good question. And I remember we discussed it earlier as well in our suitable conversations to follow a character through the beginning to the end of their lives it is an incredibly hard thing to do but if if you are to witness something as colossal and momentous as partition then surely the impact of that event cannot end with the living of that event it needs to carry on sometimes with most people it carries on throughout their lives till the end as i mentioned earlier with a lot of older people and I th- It was important for me to show that the consequence of these events lingers on in the person, of course, but also their families, and it has long lasting effects. So, to write about Samir's history from his birth to his death is not only to write his life, it is to write lives of people that come after him that become a part of his life for X amount of years. So whether it is his daughter, Sophie, whether it is his granddaughter, Anouk, that plays a large role. Similarly, for Fahaz, to write about her life is not to write about her life alone. It is to write about her father, Altaf. It is to write about her daughter, Ayat, her husband, Fahad, why that union came into being. And eventually her grandson, who is really the key to bringing things in a way full circle. So, yes. So I think to write from start to finish about Samir and Firdaus' life meant not only to write about their lives, but to write about everything around their lives. To use their lives in a way as sort of markers to go through the generations, to show that what they experienced has consequences. And they may not be visible consequences or obvious consequences, but I think once you become aware of the consequences, it is very hard to ignore them, especially if you realize that in some way they really define your sense of identity. Because we are we are made up of all the people that came before us. We are burdened with their histories, whether we want to accept them or not. Yeah. Yeah. It's carried on and on. Yes, but as you know as well from writing uh, your novel, it is very challenging to write someone's full life.
0: It is. I could Uh. never do it.
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, I didn't think that I could do it either. I don't know how well Mm -hmm. I've done it. I think now there are things that I would add or take away. But I have to say that writing anyone's full life requires writing a lot of mundane stuff, you know? (laughs) If, I mean, we think that everything has to be momentous, but actually, sometimes it's just boiling water on the stove or, you know, drawing the curtain. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yes.
0: But it's important to add those moments because, as mm-hmm. we were saying at the beginning of our conversation, um, you know, they are important um, mm-hmm. to the artist's eye and to the character's life, and consequently to the reader as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, writing about love, Archil, is is difficult. I mean, writing is difficult. Writing about love is tricky. But you write a love story that is that never is, you know. So how do you how do you write a love story that never is, that never comes to fruition, that um, that doesn't come to be, that doesn't see its most complete version of itself? In some ways, or at least physically, tangibly.
1: Well, perhaps the answer is because um, because I have never felt anything like this, mm-hmm. and um, maybe you are imagining something so so intense and so impossible. Yeah. I think the, the, one question I, <laughs> the one question I get asked a lot their, uh, is whether the love story of Samir and Firdaus is based on a love story of mine. And the other question I get asked a lot is like, oh, don't you think it's very similar to Veerzara? Both those questions make me laugh. And they make me laugh because when I say that, no, it's... It's not based on my love story. I have none. Uh, Then they ask, well, how can you write about love if you haven't been in love or if you're not in love at the moment? And I find that interesting because, I mean, it's it's like the most universal feeling, isn't it? To be loved, to love, to love your family, to love another, to love nature, animals, craft. That and the intent, longing to be loved as well. The longing to love. I think this is where, maybe this is where a lot, of, um, a lot of feeling came, to imagine something that you don't have, but maybe you would want. I think another way to think about it is that Sumit and Firdaus, they exist in a time that is not this time. And their love belongs to a moment that is not this current moment where we have so much choice and so much access and so much rejection and denial and so many ways of, of loving and being loved and finding love and seeking love and being rejected from love. It belongs to a time where it, it really meant something different um and I think again going back to the research I did with people it was not it was not exceptional for them to mention oh before partition you know I used to I used to really I used to be in love with this girl who was my neighbor I used to see her every day from the window or um after partition I saw this girl in the refugee camp and I fell in love and we got married These were very common stories or I left behind my girlfriend and never saw her again. And I've been searching for her since. Not in this super dramatic way. Of course, there was more to it. But I feel like these were very common stories that I heard. And it meant something to people uh, to find that kind of love. And maybe it was an aspirational quality. I don't know. But I felt that it was true to the time. Um, in, in one interview that I had done in Calcutta, a lady said to me when she, she was speaking about her courtship with her husband right after partition for a few months, you know, they, they got to know each other. And she said that for three or four months, he mixed with me. And, uh, I, I just, I remember loving this, this phrase he mixed with me. And in the novel, Firdaus says this, and and, I acknowledge it at the end of the book, saying it came from one of my interviews, but Firdaus says that for 10 years, Samir mixed with me. Because this phraseology of one human being mixing into another human being was so uniquely poetic and belongs so much to a different time than the time I was born into, that I felt this is what I want. You know, there is... Some people have said that it extends for a very long time. There's, you know, memory of each other, the fact that they hold on to it till the end. And perhaps it does. To some people, it's unbelievable. Perhaps it is. But I think for me, it was a reflection of reality. If if, if I'm interviewing an 89-year-old man and he says to me, I remember every every curve, every shape, every, you know, surface of this face that I would see every day for 10 years before partition across my window. And I would see her smile in her eyes and I fell in love. And if at the end of his life, he still remembered that, well, that was some form of, yeah, that was some form of love.
0: Yeah. You know, you've mentioned, of course, that So much of this book is informed by these careful interviews that you've been conducting for so many, so many years. So with your nonfiction, you work from a place of listening, you know, to these things that are said and unsaid by the people you interview. Um, Do you find that you might employ similar strategies with your fictional characters? Are you listening to them too?
1: Such a great question. <laughs> yes, I think so. Yes, I think so. And you you know this well because when you're working in historical narrative, when you're in the book, you're really in the book. And it's very difficult to emerge into your present space then, you know, because for me, like I would be writing the book and I would be dreaming about the book and then thinking about the book. And it, I was not really in my present moment. But then there were characters that did things, that did things they wanted to do, not I wanted them to do, and you have to listen to them. For instance, um, Firdaus as a character was never going to be such a large part of the narrative. She was always going to be seen through Samir's um, lens, through his life. But in the course of writing. I was shocked at how much space and agency she demanded. I was very surprised at how much more she asked to be on the page, how she wanted her own story. Um, And you have
0: to comply with that, you know. You know, you've said before that uh, Vivek is the thread that runs through the book, right? Vivek is the character, his story. Um, And did writing him come easily? I mean, I know each character presents their own complications um, in, you know, in us bringing them to life. But were there characters that felt more tricky to you than than others? That's such
1: a great question because Vivek's character arc is so uh, vast, because he, he's not only a perfumer, but also a soldier. So I think in that sense, writing him was difficult as someone that interacted with both beauty and violence throughout the course of his life. And in that sense, even while he's interacting with violence, his interaction is limited to a form of cowardice. So writing a man who is vulnerable, like, I suppose it's a little harder than I thought it would be to make a man not obviously masculine, but masculine enough that within that masculinity there is space for vulnerability, which ideally is is how all men should be. But Vivek, then embodies many aspects of very clear cut signs of PTSD. His, if I were to follow him chronologically, it would be grows up in the house of a cloth merchant in Lahore is not, is not fulfilled enough to be in this shop, to look after, you know, the wares as his parents do. And he applies to join the army and he gets into the army and he trains with the army. And then he goes to fight in the First World War. And that changes him completely as a person, because very suddenly at quite a young age, he has been, uh, he has seen the violence of the world. And he knows that he is not in any way made for it and he recounts this even in the book he says my father said baba said we were not made for war i should have listened to him because there are things that he just he can't do he can't allow his heart to do he does not have the capability to kill and yet he's in the army and so much of that period is defined by a sense of cowardice which are rare uh, which are rare moments defined in army narratives because it is very much about the glorification of the profession so he is in that sense a resistant soldier a reluctant soldier and he finds any way he can to leave, to escape to other forms of other forms of feeling more beautiful landscapes where uh, yet again he is defined by a cowardice of you know, what if I'm found? What if I'm discovered? Um, and then, of course, his return to the horror and his reinvention from soldier to perfumer is another character arc that was quite delicate because how much of beauty can be obfuscated by fear? How much can the fear of the past consume the present? And how much of loss can you put into an invisible art form like perfumery? So I think he grapples with his own losses. He grapples with his own secrets very much in private. At some point, Samir says that he was the most private person he knew. And he died with so many secrets in him. Samir couldn't believe that the person he got to know in death was so different than the person he knew in life. Um, but then Samir bears the burden of his ancestor. You know, his life is defined by the actions of his uncle
0: in ways that he did not think he would have to when he was yeah. a child. And this is what we were talking about earlier as well, right? This sort of the carrying on of. Um, a story, right? It gets passed on um, to generations far beyond your own. Um, just in the way, you know, that we think of Vivek's life as in some ways quite vast in its wealth of experiences, um, you know, in terms of geography, in ter- terms of, you know, historical uh, happenings, you um, You know, the book includes this kind of vast sweep as well to accommodate his story. Um, I'm always curious to know how a writer, especially, you know, a writer who's working with historical fiction, um, how do you choose? And I think I asked you this at Suitable Conversations as well um but how do you choose which details I to place know what you're asking yeah i i want you to answer in more detail please mm. <laughs> how do you choose which details to place within your book do you work by subtraction do you know you know do you sort of include everything you think is relevant and then slowly sort of take away you know is that your process
1: Hmm, that's a very good question. How do you choose? Yes. Well, there are some things that are quite obvious.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: What is your scene? Mm-hmm. What is the setting? What is the year? So for instance, and who is the person that will experience that? Yeah. So, for instance, in the book, in the weeks and months leading up to partition, there are certain acts of violence... In the city of Lahore. Yeah. And these extend from casual stabbings to more, um, you know, like bomb blasts in a hospital, for example. Now, all of these things were things that I had studied through my nonfiction work, and I knew that they were going to make up the background landscape of this lead up to this event. And this is also sometimes um, the difficulty of being a historian writing a novel, that how much is too much, how much to keep, how much to take away. And who, apart from you, really cares about these things? Like, no, But it's it's a valid question, you know, am I putting in a kind of embroidery on a shawl because I know that that's an accurate um, embroidery that was happening at that time or... Who else is caring about this, you know? But inevitably, I think think each little nuanced piece of information finds its reader. So uh, that's that. But um, I think you are right in the sense that I work with subtraction to an extent that I build the scene, put in the perspective of the person who will be, in a sense, our narrator for that scene. And then either add or subtract, mostly subtract, and perhaps then comes your, you know, imagination. So in this, um, the reason why I mentioned these these casual stabbings and these bomb blasts is that uh, there is a small section just before Samir leaves Lahore that he's invited to a political gathering. And as he... Is cycling to that gathering. He is thinking about everything that has happened, including the bomb blast at the Lachman Hospital and the casual stabbings in X neighborhood. And all of these are real. All of them have happened. But I think it's, um, it is the narrator in you that then puts them into, weaves them into perspective through a character. Um, and then as he is at that rally, things are making sense. He's making sense of what is happening there as well. Um, there is an aspect of my imagination in what that, you know, gathering would look like. What does it look like when someone puts their fist up in the air and says, you know, Hindustan Zindabad or Pakistan murtabad or Pakistan Zindabad and Hindustan Murdabad? What does that look like? Um, what does it look like to have a body stabbed in the middle of the day lying on the ground with blood oozing out these are things i have never seen before but i have heard enough stories to to be able to imagine the visual and include it but then i think um i think it's very important for me to have these nuggets of reality ready like this is why i think a lot of my additional reading comes comes in handy for me, because by reading not just history, and I read a lot of newspapers of that time, and I think the thing that really helped me is to read self-published memoirs. I know it sounds like a strange thing, but they have incidents, images, personal experiences that you will not find in any other book so you remember at the conversation we were talking about the inclusion of that cup yes, of tea I love that detail <laughs> right in the novel Vivek and Altaf share a cup of tea outside Wazir Khan mosque in like 1940 or something like that 1939 and as Vivek takes a sip of that cup of tea, he thinks to himself about the first time he had tea in the barracks of World War One. And tea is so synonymous with India. But what we don't realize is that tea was tea was a British thing. It was just grown in India. They would grow it. They would sell it. It, it was not really for Indians. Indians had lassi, they had chach, haldi dood, stuff like that. It was only when there was an overproduction of tea leaf in India that the British started like offering it to Indians. And it was free first, you know, like, and I read this in someone's memoir. He said that in the 30s, there were men going around the streets of Lahore handing out free cups of chai with a bun as incentive, you know, because there had been such an overproduction of the tea leaf. So I had never read that. Anywhere else, and I remember just thinking, I have to put this in somewhere. My God, it's so brilliant! And so my editor and I, we we just kept it as this like paragraph of information, and we would say, okay, well maybe it'll fit here. No, no, maybe it'll fit here. Mm, no, that doesn't feel right. And then eventually, it found a place because we just didn't want to let go of it. Yeah, but I think it happens. It's sort of. I suppose a jigsaw in a way, you know where the big things are, you know where the big moments are. And then there are other scenes, other historical elements, other instances that happen in your everyday life that you feel belong in this novel somewhere, you know? So um, I very much uh,
0: put, put it together like yes. that. Yes. And, and... Mm. You know the the larger historical framework, um, and the the fictional parameters of of you know of the of the novel, they intersect and they they sort of play with each other in some ways. They sort of tussle, they tangle. They have, yes. to.
1: yeah, they have to. They have to because otherwise, uh, where is the imaginative aspect of it? You know, uh, sometimes you are. Moving against history, we're resisting it. Sometimes you're succumbing to it. Um, And I do find that there is a real joy of discovery about yourself, about your manuscript in this process that I did not find while
0: writing nonfiction. Yeah. Yeah, you've mentioned, I think, a couple of times in other interviews that writing fiction gave you a sense of unexpected freedom, you know, as opposed to writing nonfiction. Um, And I wanted to ask, are you still excited by the possibilities of exploring this kind of fictional storytelling? And are you looking to explore it again? Yes, why not?
1: I... I know we've talked about this otherwise as well. Um, See, a novel gives me great joy. It is, it feels like luxuriating in a really incredible body of water. And when you're in it, it takes over. You're completely in it. And then you emerge from it like a different person. I really enjoy the process of writing fiction, but it takes me a very long time to sit with an idea and to see that that idea has enough potential and enough growth in it. Because, you know, when we, I mean, at least me, I guess, when I think of, Every novel begins with a singular image or a singular idea or a conversation, and then you have to allow it to grow, and it grows organically in your mind over a certain period of time. Um, And for me, sometimes those ideas pan out, and sometimes they fall flat. I need to give certain months, certain years for a fictional idea to grow. And in my head, I need to start connecting the dots and seeing if there's enough movement, enough, if, is it malleable enough? Is it limber enough? Can I topple it over its head? Will it still stand? It's almost as if, um, think about building, I suppose, think about building a house and the house needs to be sturdy enough for you to stand in it. But the house is built absolutely of invisible fictional things. And yet those things need to be strong enough to be able to hold themselves together and not come crashing down on you. Yeah.
0: And for that idea to also have the potential to draw you and draw you over an extended length of time. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Um, I think
1: for me, the marker of a good book that I have written is if I can keep my interest in it. So when I read, when I read Everlasting Things Now, I still find things, you know, I still find things that I can discover that I didn't pay enough attention to before and say, oh God, yeah, that's so interesting. Or I wonder how he felt. Or wait, what was I thinking when I wrote this? It's not that I look at the book and say, oh, okay, well that's done. I still find that it intrigues me. It keeps my interest. It makes me ask questions. And I think for me, this is the marker of a good book, Um, which is why I think I need to let a novel sit in my mind because you have so many ideas for novels and then you get bored of them after a week or you find the hole in the story after a month and you're like, yeah, this will never work, you know. Um, I think there needs to be enough mystery and intrigue in it for you to be interested, but it needs to be generous enough as well. You know, it is, it is in a sense, uh, a relationship with a story that you need to create.
0: Well, that's a very exciting prospect, Archul, that there is so much more fictional uh, work to look forward to from you. We can't wait. I mean, we will have to wait. A few years, possibly more. Uh, but it's very exciting to think that there is so much more fictional storytelling uh, to be coming from you. That actually was my last uh, question. And I thought it was a rather lovely moment to end on because it's uh, expansive and open-ended in a way. And even though we've spent quite a bit uh, of time talking about the past, we find ourselves um, at in a moment where we are looking to the future. Uh, thank you so much, Archil. This has been such an incredible conversation.
1: Yes, thank you so much, Janice. I mean, it's always such a delight to speak to you. But I feel now. I mean, I wonder now. Will you be writing any nonfiction? These are the questions I want to ask you. You know. Um, But I think, you know, this is also the joy of being friends and writers. First, that relationship is so rare and it's so precious because, you you know, we are in a sense uh, contemporaries, but that also means that we are sharing the same space and fighting for the same space. But I think the mutual respect is so rare. And I am so grateful that I can turn to you for advice and inspiration and meaningful
0: conversation. This was Books I Love, where Kitty and I were in conversation with Archil Malhotra on her novel, The Book of Everlasting Things. Thank you so much for joining us and keep an eye out and an ear out for our next episode.